If you have your Bibles, um, open up with me, for, please, to First Peter. We're in First Peter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have some loaner Bibles in the back, and uh, we want to make sure that you have a Bible. If you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can keep it, put your name in it, take it home. If, if you have a Bible, but you just forgot it today and you want to borrow one, borrow it and return it at the end of the day when you're done. But again, if you don't own a Bible, please keep it and, uh, and read it. So 1 Peter chapter 1, um, beginning in verse number 3 is where we're going to start today, where we left off. You know, last week we took a week and, and hopefully we, we did something a little different, hopefully led by the Holy Spirit. And, and we, we got to know Peter a little bit. And previously, when we were studying First John, we spent a week um, getting to know who John was. And so I really feel powerful. And I want you guys to hear this. I really feel like there's, there's a value in us knowing these authors and these, these disciples of Jesus and, and, and where they were coming from when, when they wrote. And for each one of us, we're going to relate maybe a little bit differently to, to parts of, of each one of them. And John and Peter were so different. And we see Peter last week as this big bull in a china closet. Peter was the guy, open mouth, insert foot. Peter was the guy who, in his own admission, said, I, I, I didn't like, I felt like I should say something. I didn't know what to say, so I just said this. And then God showed up and said, Peter, stifle. Peter, shut your mouth and listen to my son on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same Peter who denied Jesus three times began to curse at a little girl, saying he didn't know the man. This rough, tough fisherman that history tells us was a large fellow. And John brags three times in the Gospel of John how when him and Peter took off from the house, going to the tomb of Jesus, that John beat him there. Well, John was younger and John could run faster and Peter couldn't get there. But when they got to the tomb, what happened? John was there and it says that John contemplated his navel and he looked inside and um, contemplated the situation. And here comes Peter. And he just knocks John out of the way and first one down into the tomb. And then in Acts chapter 4, the thing that's very interesting to me and powerful about Peter is that the, the religious leaders, Jesus had died on the cross. He rose again. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost 50 days later. Peter preaches. 5,000 people, 4,000 and 5,000 people get saved. The Lord is adding to the church. John, Peter is out and he sees a guy begging for alms and, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus rise and walk. And he picks up this guy and this guy begins to, to walking and leaping and praising God. And, and the religious rulers are watching this and they grab Peter and John and they put him in jail and they beat him up and they say, don't go out and preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And the very next day they go to the, they go to the jail to get him, and they're not there. And the guy that went to get him comes back and he says, we went to the prison to get him and they weren't there. But we found him in the same streets preaching the gospel. So if you want them, they're out there right where you rested them yesterday preaching the gospel. And they were so dumbfounded. And they said, how is it that, that these men are untrained, unlearned, they're uneducated, untrained men? How is it that they're able to speak with such wisdom, such power? How is it that God is able to do such miracles through their lives? And then it says this, but yet they perceived that they had been with Jesus for three years. That's like a mic drop. You can let that sink in. They, they had been with Jesus for three years. And what was so cool is that the people around them recognized. Now, again, Peter is a fisherman. 
I don't know what kind of education he has, but I'm pretty positive in, in the culture and the history that he has. If he went to school, maybe somewhere around the sixth grade, seventh grade, his dad said, okay, Peter, that's, that's a waste of time. You're going to fish your whole life. Time to put the books down and go, go get in the boat. You're, you're full-time fisherman now. So he may have a junior high education. He knew how to fish. Fishermen had a reputation for being vulgar and foul-mouthed. And, and this is the guy that, that, that's in the streets now and the religious people are looking at him and going, this guy doesn't even have a high school diploma. And yet, look what he's able to do. Oh, he's been with Jesus for three years. And, and, and what's encouraging, and what I'm hoping you're going to catch out of this, is that no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what your formal education or training, is that Jesus takes broken lives and he changes them. Jesus takes broken situation is any fixism jesus takes the foolish things of this world and he confounds the wise and the world doesn't get it but you know god didn't go and choose his disciples at the at the harvard graduation line he chose fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and natural enemies and people like you and me and then he he did something so miraculous in their lives that now we get to this point where peter's writing to us And I think it was important for us to hear where Peter came from and who Peter was. Because again, uh, unlike John, who was very simple, and unlike John, who was just very to the point and very redundant, Peter is very deep. Peter drops some serious, theological, deep stuff in 1 Peter. And if you just read that all by itself, you might think this is like some nerdy egghead dude that like spent too much time um, behind the computer in the library. Then you think about who Peter is, and that's not Peter at all. But God so changed his life. God so did such something radical in his life that, that he's a completely different person. So we spent last week getting to know Peter. And just that he was an average everyday guy that was, had a lot of faults and denied the Lord. And yet Jesus chose to love him and restore him. And he met him on the beach after, after Peter kind of threw in the towel and went back fishing. And he, and he asked him a question, the same question three times. What did he ask Peter there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection three times? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter had to be honest with that answer. And in English, it just doesn't really translate very well there because it's only one word for love but actually they were using multiple words in the greek language for love and and jesus used the same word all three times peter do you agape me the strongest most powerful word for love peter do you are you are you do you agape me and and peter gives a different answer three times and he he never says lord i I, you know i agape you he says lord you know that i i phileo you you know that i'm fond of you you know that i'm passionate about you you know that i care for you You know that, but he never, because he was being honest in what Jesus was asking, do you agape me? And Peter never really could say in his heart, Lord, because his life didn't reflect that. And his life in that point, in that moment, wasn't there. And so to be honest, he said, Lord, I phileo you. You know that I love you. And the Lord restored him. And the Peter that we see now asked that question of Jesus by the time he writes this epistle 30 years later, would say, Lord, I agape you. Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. And sold out different Peter. As we get into it, last thing, way of introduction. We want you guys to understand the context in in which Peter writes. Uh, uh, Peter writes sometime 63, 64, 65. Jesus died, let's call it AD 32, 33, somewhere in there. Um, 
50 days later, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit is given. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. The church is born. Peter and John go out. In the meantime, Paul, uh, God is raising up Paul over the next um, seven years from like 33 to 40. Paul is this obscure guy who's later, probably about 40, introduced on the scene. Peter and John, they're, they're out and they're beginning to start churches. They're traveling. They're sharing the gospel. People are getting saved. The early church is being born. They're developing early church government. And, and God's Holy Spirit is moving in the early church. Now, now we're 30, 25 years later, and, and Peter is, is writing an epistle back to the, the church in a whole. And he doesn't address his epistle as, you know, Paul does to a certain city or a certain church that he starts. He, he addresses the letter to the pilgrims. To the pilgrims all over the area. And who's the pilgrims? That's you and I. That's a term for Christians that we use that this life that we live is a pilgrimage because our real home is where? In heaven. Our real eternity is heaven. And what we do here will, will matter for all of eternity. And what we do here is such a blink in the eye to where we're going to spend our real life, our real eternity in heaven forever. And so Peter won't even address us as, you know, he just addresses us as pilgrims, sojourners. The, the, the life that you live now is, is just a tent. Getting ready for what Jesus said in John 14, that the mansions that he's preparing for you. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll bring you again to myself. And so Peter just addressing a group. And this time in Rome, the, the, the leader of Rome, the, the ruler, the monarch of Rome was a guy by the name of Caesar Nero. Caesar, as you know, is a title. And there was many Caesars. There was Caesar Augustus, um, Caesar, 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 on and on. But Caesar Nero was the ruler at this time in the early church. Under Caesar Nero, before the first century, he was responsible for the death of six million Christians. Those are six million people that got saved and joined the church from the time that Jesus died on the cross. And six million of them that, that died martyrs for their faith. Caesar Nero, as history tells us, not, not biblical history, secular history tells us that he was a madman, that, that he wanted to rebuild Rome. And so his, his plan to do it was he set all of Rome on fire. He set all of Rome on fire so that he could rebuild it. And then he needed a scapegoat. He needed an out. The church was growing. The early church was just being established. This group that they called was first called Christian in Antioch was growing. And, and they were talking kind of crazy. And they did things like communion where they took the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he had a scapegoat. And he blamed all the troubles on the Christians. And he began to persecute Christians in the early church. Caesar Nero was the one who would take Christians and he would dip them in wax and he would light them on fire and he would ride his chariot through his garden with Christians on fire as a madman naked on his chariot through the garden screaming, you are the light of the world. He's, he was the one that was responsible for putting the Christians in the, in the gladiator games and in, in the Colosseum fighting the lions and being fed to the lions. Six million Christians murdered, martyred during Caesar Nero's reign. Sometime around the turn of the century, um, things started to change politically. But this is the group that Peter is writing to. So we'll keep that in mind in context as we go through this, that, that the church was under serious persecution. What, what happens to the church historically when they face this kind of persecution? What happens? It grows, if you're not sure. It's what's happened historically. It's just a historic fact. 
excuse me, when, whenever the church faces this kind of persecution, it always grows. You know what's happened in China over the last 20 years? Have you guys heard? In China, the largest, one of the largest growing areas of Christians in the world is in China. Now, that, that's a fad that's, that's 20 years old now. That's happened over the last 20 years. Today, as we speak today, the same thing is happening right now in, in Africa. And in Africa, the gospel is exploding. So pray for Africa. Pray for the work that God's Spirit is doing. But what happened in China 20 years ago was the Chinese government cracked down on evangelical Christians in China. And they began to persecute and attack the churches that were existing and the work that was happening. And it spread the church. The church had to go underground. The pastors were all being arrested. They were being put in jail. They were being killed. And, and as a result, it exploded. And, and then where, where us in the West were studying, we're like, what happened? How did they build churches that are millions of people? You know, and we want to do that. And it was this amazing persecution and through it, the Church of China grew. And as they came and they, they, they persecuted a group, the group would spread. And then guess what happened? Everywhere that the individuals spread, churches and people were getting saved and growing up. And then they'd attack those and it would spread them out. And then they would come and they would find the leaders and they would put them in prison. And it would force other people to step up in their place and be leaders. And through persecution, God was raising up leaders and spreading people out and raising up leaders and spreading people out in the same vein of, of sharing the gospel that, that he uses today. And so under this, the, the church is exploding and it's growing. Let's look at it. Verse number three. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. If you're new, I'm going to read a verse. I'm going to talk about it. And then I'm going to quiz you on what I said. And, and I'll give you a clue. Nine times out of ten, the answer that I'm looking for is right there in the verse that I just read. You look down and, and you'll be like, know the answer guy. Um, so the first thing I, I want us to look at, verse number three, is that you've begotten us again to a living hope. Look at your neighbor and say, living hope. Okay, so th this is so key, you guys, to, to Peter and to what, what he's trying to teach in this idea of hope. Peter, as we, as we did last week in our introduction, we have Paul, Peter, and John. We'll just call those the big three for right now. Paul wrote 14 books in the New Testament. Okay, John wrote five books in the New Testament, and Peter writes three. There's only 27 books in the New Testament. It only leaves a handful left of other writers. Paul becomes and, and is and in his writings, he's the apostle of faith. And he writes the most and covers most the area of faith in our life. We just got through studying the apostle John and he's the apostle of love. And here we find Peter and we're going to call him for this study for this sake. Peter is the apostle of living hope. And so we have faith, hope and love. Paul, Peter and John. And Peter is the, 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 the apostle of, of hope. And what he's preaching and what he's teaching is that this idea of hope and how it changes your life and my life. Last week, I think it did, I show you guys a story about the, the science experiment with the lab rats. And they took lab rats and they put them in water. And the lab rats would, would, would tread water for about 30 minutes before they would drown. Then the next batch of lab rats, they put them back in the water and, and they let them swim. And they timed it till about the time the last batch succumbed to and stopped fighting and drowned. They pulled them out alive. They dried them off. They gave them energy. They let them drink. They let them eat. And then they put them back in the water. This time, swimming with the idea that something was going to come and rescue them. And they now had hope. The first batch swam for 30 minutes and died. 
The batch that was rescued and put back in swam for 60 hours. And that is just what hope can do in your life and my life. Hope is so powerful in motivating us and changing our lives. Now, I just want to clue you in and give you guys a little freebie. This is not my notes. But the, the, the devil's plan, the enemy's plan in your life is to remove hope. If he can remove hope from your life, he can destroy your life. What is the enemy's ultimate goal for, for your life and my life? It's suicide. That would be his ultimate goal. That would be his ultimate end game for every one of us is to remove. And how does he do it? He continues to remove the hope in your life. There's no hope. There's no chance of change. There's no hope. It's hopeless. Just kill yourself. Just kill yourself. It's hopeless. The people in the Bible that Satan controlled physically, literally, their lives ended in suicide. Judas Iscariot is one of them. And, and it's, it's a common denominator of, of, of the enemy's plan to remove your life from hope. And hope is such a powerful powerful um, tool in your life and my life. And Peter's going to tap into it a little bit here. You have to have hope. There's hope in Jesus. And, and if anybody, if the devil, if you ever feel in your heart, in your mind, there's no hope, there's no restoration. I'm telling you this morning, it's a lie of Satan. There is hope for you because Jesus promises hope. He promises restoration. He promises healing. He promises no matter where you are, where you've been, that today is the day of salvation and there's a chance for a better future. And there is hope in Jesus. We have to have that, Christians, as God's people. And so we have this living hope. Now look at verse number three. This living hope comes through what? Comes through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ in the dead. So listen, listen. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you and I would not have hope. There would be nothing to hope in. We, you know what separates Christianity and following Jesus from all other religions and isms and schisms in the world? Is that our God is alive. Is that Jesus lives. We serve a God who is alive and well and lives. And that's what our hope is in. We wouldn't have hope if there was no resurrection. We wouldn't have hope if Jesus didn't defeat sin and death. November 2018, I want you to go to Israel with me. Every time I go to Israel, there's, there's always something different. I remember two trips ago, I went to Israel. I went to this place that's called the Praetorium. And it's an actual floor that, that, that would, that's the same level. And it's the same place where Jesus would have been scourged. It's the place where they would have stripped him down, whipped him with the cat of nine tails, where his blood would have, would have covered that ground. And it would have been the place where the Romans would have beat Jesus. And I can remember being there two trips ago. And it was the most emotional, powerful experience ever had being there on the praetorium floor. I looked so forward to going back and being on the praetorium floor this trip. And it was different. It was cool. I was glad to be there. But this trip, there was something just different happened. God did that same thing, but he did it for me this trip at the tomb, at the garden tomb where, where we go. And when you go to Israel, there's two holy sites that, that we visit on the tour. And one is a Catholic holy site. And what happens in the Holy Land is wherever they find something that's genuine, that's historic, um, in the Sea of Galilee where Peter lived. It's in a city called Capernaum. It's, it's semi-tropical. It's below sea level. It's just a beautiful... They're growing bananas there when we were there. You know, they're growing every tropical fruit there. Wonderful place, Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is like laid back. It's like where the... the, the the flip-flops and the board shorts and the hey kind of guys hang out. And, you know, you go into the city in Jerusalem and it's totally different. All the religious people are there. It's hustle and bustle. It's big city. But, but in Galilee, it's just, it's just laid back. But anyways, in Capernaum, where historic Peter's house is, and we know that's the actual spot that Peter's house was, they built a church over the top of it. 
And everywhere in the Holy Land, there's places that. And if somebody finds them, they build a church over it. Well, anyways, in Jerusalem, there's a church there in, in the old city, right in downtown, near where the Dome of the Rock is. And it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a Catholic holy site. And in that site, they believe that's where Jesus was, was buried and where his tomb is. Somebody sent me an article just recently because they're doing some excavating there. Then, then you leave the old city and you go up the hill just a little bit, just north of, of where the, the old city wall is. And that's the place where Golgotha is. And to this day, you can still see the description of the Bible where it looks like in the mountain is carved the face of a skull. And right below there is a garden tomb that we visit. And it, and it exactly fits the biblical narrative of, of the, the empty tomb of Jesus. And, and you go to the, the site of the Holy Sepulchre and it's graven images everywhere. And it just has an icky feeling and people are bowing down and kissing the stones and, 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 and all these people from all over the world just coming to this place and, and really not knowing the Lord personally because we don't worship a place, we worship a risen Savior. And what happens there just, I never feel good about it. And then, and then you go and it's to the garden tomb. And it's just something totally different. It's just, it just feels so, so right and so good. And, and I believe and always have and, you know, that, that that is the actual burial site. That is the actual tomb that Jesus was placed in. And I don't know why that other site, I guess the Lord allows it because maybe it takes all the yahoos away from the real site that don't need to be there. But when, when you go there, this, this, is the, this is the thing that God spoke to me this year. You can go, any one of you, you can go today. You know what the interesting thing is about the garden tomb? It's owned by the Scottish, Scottish government. Has been since the 1900s. And they've never charged a dollar for anybody to go there. They won't do it because they're Christian. The foundation of those that own it are Christian. And they, they, they believe it's the, the actual tomb of Jesus. And they won't charge anybody to go there. So, so you can go there. You can take the tour. You can stand in the place where Jesus was buried and, and rose again and conquered sin and death. And, and you can't say, well, I didn't have the $2 to get in the gate. Because this doesn't cost you nothing to get in. And not a person on this planet is going to be able to stand before Jesus without excuse. Because he'll be able to say to you, you I left the place where I, where I rose. And you could go for yourself and you could see the place. I'm not there. And it's a testimony. It stands as this day to a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A powerful testimony that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people that go out and start false religions. But just catch the gravity of this. If, you know, we could go out and we could start a false religion and any of us today. And, you know, people do it all the time. They make money on it and, 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 and start something. And, you know, but, but maybe we get a few people to follow us. Not tons, but I tell people, you know, if you want me to follow your religion, all you have to do is just die and then raise again three days later and I'll follow you. Let me shoot you in the head a couple times and, you know, or go lay under the railroad tracks and let the train run over you a couple times. And if, if you come back on Thursday or Sunday, I'll, hey, we, well, let's, get, let's get rolling. Like Jesus died and he came back three days later alive. And that's what Peter says. We have this hope and our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and we have that as a resurrection. You know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is documented more than the Battle of Waterloo? There's more documentation and proof in the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is that the Battle of Waterloo ever happened or, 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 or was an actual war. 
And yet none of us have a problem with believing that the Battle of Waterloo took place when we read it in our history books. But yet there's those that will attack the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is that it's true. Jesus died and rose again. And Peter says we have this hope in us. Jesus is alive. Amen. Verse four to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through the faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Now, up to this point, it it all rests on the sovereignty of God. You have no power to affect or change any of that promise up to this point. And then, and then he stops, or there's a pause there. There should maybe be a comma there. Because now we turn from the sovereignty of God unto man's free will. Now, Christians, um, they, we, we like to argue this is an area where we divide. And we, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it's not a dividing issue. It's more of a, a minor issue. But we disagree on this idea of the sovereignty of God. There's those that teach that, that God predestines and decided beforehand whether you're going to go to heaven or hell and you really don't have a free will. It's, it's God's sovereignty and he's chosen. And eventually, if you're chosen for heaven, you're, you'll, you'll make it. They, they even go as far as they'll stand and they'll pick it at Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusades where he's preaching the gospel because why are we out preaching the gospel? Those that, that God's predestined and, and in his sovereignty, they're going to get saved anyways. Ridiculous, right? Retarded. So we, we, we have, but we have in the Bible taught very clearly that God has a sovereignty over, over everything. But that, that can't be undone or can't be understood without the opposite side that God in the Bible also teaches that you and I have a free will and a free choice. That whosoever believes, that whosoever believes And over and over again, there is a responsibility of man. And God says that he knows who's going to choose him. And according to foreknowledge, he's up. He's watching the whole parade at one time. He can see the first float and the last float. He doesn't need to stand there and watch it go by. He can see the whole thing at once. And he knows who's going to choose him and who's not. But that doesn't negate the fact that you and I have a choice. And this idea is taught throughout the whole Bible. God's free will, God's God's sovereignty, and man's free will. And so we we have it. Here again, where Peter says all that, and then it says that the promise happens, verse 5, through faith. So what's our part? So basically, what does that mean? Believe. Right? That's what faith is. Faith is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe on the one whom he sent. To believe and receive the free gift of salvation that God offers. That is our responsibility and our part. And that part is on us. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have grieved by various trials. So we get this concept that Peter puts together. James also puts the same idea together. You usually don't see these together. Grieving and trials and then tremendous joy. What does James say on that vein? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Like, I just popped both front tires on my car. Yay, I'm so joyful or whatever happens. And I was teasing you guys last week and I said, 
I said, you know, you guys don't do that. I said, I can't remember the last time one of you guys was going through something really terrible and you text me and, and a praise report how excited and wonderful your life was because of all this crazy trials you're going through. So guess what happened after church last week? My phone starts lighting up with people telling me how terrible things are, but how they're rejoicing and teasing me over the, I thought that was good. I got a kick out of that. But this idea is true. It's, it's biblically true that, that we, um, we're going to face trials in this life. And there is this encouragement that we have this hope and that this hope is further. And, and it's, here's the deal. There's a process. Look at what Peter says. Let's, let's go on. Look what Peter says. <clears throat> Verse seven, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. So the genuineness of your faith, it's more precious than gold. So we're not talking about just, yeah, I believe the Bible says the demons believe and tremble. They're still going to go to hell and spend the rest of eternity in eternal separation from God in a lake that burns with fire. The Bible makes a distinction between a a genuine faith, a believing faith, a saving faith, and just the guy that says, oh yeah, I believe in the good old guy upstairs. Well, if you call him the good old guy upstairs, then you probably don't know Jesus. But but here he says, listen, the genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we basically the process of you finding joy, gladness, happiness, victory, character, it comes through trials. That's that's just the process God uses in our lives. And then and then Peter gives us an example, an easy example that we can all um, relate to that helps us understand. And he uses the the, the way that, that gold is refined here. It says that right in verse number seven. How do they make gold pure? They burn it. They put it in fire. Then you have what? 14 karat gold, 16, 18 karat gold. Then you get pure gold. And how do you go from 14 karat gold to pure gold? The higher the number, the better, right? So the goldsmith takes the gold and he puts it in a fire and he turns up the heat to a certain temperature. And the, and the impurities, the scum, the dross, it, it, it comes to the top and he scrapes it off. And now we have 14 karat gold. But if he wants 18 karat gold, he has to turn the fire up hotter. And the process repeats until, until if he wants pure gold, he keeps turning the fire. He keeps scraping the scum off the top and turning up the fire until it's finally done. How does the blacksmith know that it's pure gold? He can see his reflection. And when he can look into the gold and he sees himself, he knows that it's done. When Jesus looks at your life and he sees himself, you're done. And then he'll know. And that's, that's the process of, of sanctification. That's the process of, of us becoming more like Jesus every day. And that's how it should be. We, sh- we, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We want to do what Jesus did. <coughs> hey, Nate, can I have a drink of water, please? Um, so, and, and that is the process, but that's, that's the way it happens, right? We go through fires and trials. And so count it all joy. Let it be found. Verse number eight says. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated 
when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. So basically, in a nutshell, 10 through 12. Peter is talking about, first of all, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully and prophesied of the grace that would come, but they didn't fully understand it. You know, Daniel was, was writing these amazing prophecies of end times. He laid out um, the, the order and succession of governments that would rule for the next, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years in a prophecy. And, and yet he, the Bible tells him, tells him to seal these things up for a time yet future. And he, he wrote things that without full understanding. Isaiah writes things that he didn't fully get. He wrote things about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He wrote details of how Jesus would die on the cross, how they would, how they would scourge him. And, and yet he didn't fully understand the, the fulfillment of these prophecies that would happen hundreds of years later. And Peter is telling us this. He's telling us, listen, have excitement, have joy in your salvation, have, have a, an appreciation of who you are in Christ because you, you're, you have a better position than, than even the prophets and even um, the angels. He says here, right at the end of verse number, number 10, he says, which things the angels desire to look into. You, you, um, you don't see Jesus and yet you worship him. You love and serve a God. You hold your hands up and you sing songs to a God that you can't see. And it says that the angels look into these things and they, they kind of marvel at your faith a little bit. They travel to and fro in the, per, in the presence of God every day. And then they look at us and we're a testimony. The Bible says that we're an example or a testimony to the angels because they, they marvel. What, these people, they've never even seen you. The prophets, they didn't even know what they were writing about. And yet the church, this side of the cross, you people, us people, we, we have this, this hope, this glory in the salvation that God's given us and a position that's greater. What did Jesus say? Who did Jesus say was the greatest person that ever lived? Now, if Jesus is, is making this compliment, it's a pretty good compliment, right? It wasn't you. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He said John the Baptist was, was the greatest that ever lived. And then he went on and said, but you are greater than John the Baptist. What he did say was you. But what he said was that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament saints. And that, that we're in a special class. We're in a new class. The bride, the church, the one that God was going to pour his Holy Spirit out upon and, and would remain upon. And, and that, 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 there, that, that Peter is telling us, like, like, let this stuff sink in. Like, use this in your walk with Christ. Appreciate these things. Understand that you have an elevated position and you have an opportunity. You have a hope in a risen Lord. And then how do we know? Look what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, what does the word therefore mean in, when we're studying the Bible? Do what? See what it's there for. Okay. Therefore is an application word. The next thing that's going to happen after you read therefore in the Bible is how do you apply what you just learned to your life? That is so important, right? We can learn, 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 but if we can't apply it to our lives, what good is it? So Peter gives us these, these, these theological truths. He gives us a bunch of lines of, of information. And so we have all this information. What's good information? 
But now, how do we take that information and apply it to our lives? Peter, that's what the therefore means. So Peter says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, now gird up is, is a biblical term that was practical that we don't have today. They would wear long skirts, and if you wanted to run, if you wanted to shoot hoops or, you know, whatever, you couldn't do it with a long skirt or really get to work. You'd have to tie up or gird up your loins. They'd wrap it up around their waist, and now it would be half, come to their knees, and then they could work, they could run, they could do what they needed to do. And so gird up your loins means get busy, roll up your sleeves, get to work. So Peter says, get to work, gird up the loins of your, verse 13, I heard it over here, of your mind. Why does he say mind? Not heart, not something else. Because why? Because doesn't the battle happen in our minds, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but since I've been a Christian, there's been times where I've pre-planned some sins. Like, I just knew I was going to go do something bad. And I plotted it in my mind, and, you know, and I I struggled with it in my mind. and, And then once I decided that, I was going to go through with it or I was going to go do this thing. I almost felt like I have to do it now. Like I've, I've predetermined it. It's, it's set in my mind. I've accomplished it and I'm going to go for it. I'll even sometimes ask God to forgive me in, in, before I do it. You guys would be proud of me as your pastor. Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to do. But it, but it was a struggle in the mind. It was a battle that I had in the mind that I lost in my mind of, of, of deciding that I was going to make some poor decisions. And so Peter understands the, the battle that happens in our mind, and he wants us to gird up our loins, to roll up our sleeves, and get busy on that, that battle that happens in our mind. You know, there, there's a saying, I want to teach it to you guys, and it says, um, we'll go through it, I'll have you learn it. It says, you, you cannot change your own heart. Can't change your own heart. But you can change your mind. Because in order to change your heart, you have to first change your mind. And God can change your heart, but God won't change your heart unless you change your mind. But if you change your mind, then God will change your heart. Got it? Let's try it. You cannot change your heart, but you can change your mind. God will not change your... No, no. God, I'm sorry, God can, that's what it was, I won't, it's God can change your, but he won't until you change your, if you change your, then God will change your heart. And so that, that battle happens in the mind. So God, God will change your heart, but he's not going to do it against your will. God's not just going to come in and, you know, we'll take abor- abortion, for example. And I talk about this one often, right? You know, I've argued abortion with people that are on the other side of the spectrum than I am. And I've tried to argue that life starts at conception and that God sees it as murder. And they don't see it that way. And I can argue, argue, argue this idea in the mind. We can go in circles and nobody's attitude or heart changes at the end of it. And then I can see that same person and the topic never comes up and we start talking about Jesus. And the person meets Jesus and they, they receive forgiveness of sins and ask Jesus to come in their heart and they begin to grow in Jesus. And over time, they're reading the word and, and they begin to change their mind about, about what, where conception starts in life and whether it's, it's right or wrong or whether it's murder. And then they change their mind and God begins to change their heart. 
when something happens and that battle happened in the mind and then God eventually changed their heart on the issue and, and seeing people change through the power of Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So Peter says, get on it, battle it in our minds. And he says, be sober. That, that not only is talking about literally sobriety as far as drugs and alcohol, but just a frame of personality, being sober, being serious, being real um, about your thoughts and your ideas. Um, so being sober, rest your hope. There's that word hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When, when is that hope that we have going to find its fulfillment? It says it right there. Remember I told you the answers are in the scripture I just read. At the when? Verse 13. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revealing, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. When is that going to happen? It could happen in the rapture. If we're the generation that's going to see the rapture, we'll see in our lives the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We will see him face to face. If we die before, before we're raptured, as we breathe our last, we'll, we will breathe our first. We will open our eyes in eternity. And we will be standing face to face to Jesus. And the Bible says every, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that will be at the revealing. And that hope, we can rest easy at that point. It was true. It is true. Jesus is Lord. And at the revealing, that, that hope is its payday. And then he goes on in verse 14. Now, this is not an oxymoron in the Bible. I know it's going to sound that way, but it says, as obedient children. Maybe you guys all have obedient children, and that just makes great sense to you. But if you're like me, that's a little bit of a struggle. Obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Now, listen, Peter is talking about therefore... He's talking about gird up the loins of your mind, understand, be sober, understand that that battle, change your mind about these things, have the mind of Christ, and then God will place your heart. And then he says, be sober. Then he says, um, as obedient children, listen, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. So as we get to this progression that Peter is working for, what happens in your life and my life, sometime maybe after we receive Christ, we made a decision to follow Christ. We make decisions to go back to the, to the old person, to make decisions and do things that the old person did. You're a new creation in Christ. And Peter's warning us against this, this sin and sin creeping back into your life. He doesn't want you. He says, separate yourself. Be holy. What does the word holy mean? It means set apart. Everybody say set apart. Now you know what holy means. What does holy mean? Set apart. How do you set? You set yourself apart as a Christian. You are in this world, but not of this world. When, when I first became a Christian, I was 20 years old when I asked Jesus in my heart. I moved shortly after in with, with some other Christian guys, young like myself, young in the Lord, young in age. And I can remember one day they, they went to the video store and, and they rented a video. It was back VHS in those days. Remember that? You get it home and you'd be mad if the guy that had it before you didn't rewind it. Take you five minutes to rewind it before you could watch it. And they rented Pulp Fiction. Three Christian young men, pretty, pretty new. And they're going to sit down and, and watch this movie. And I got up and I just removed myself. It was trash. I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to watch it. I wanted to separate myself. 
I didn't want to be holier than thou. I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want to offend them. I didn't want to make a case that, that I was better than they were because I wasn't going to watch that movie because I wasn't any better than they were whether I watched it or I didn't watch it. But it was a choice that I wanted to be set apart and I knew trash in, trash out and that there was probably a better way I could spend two hours than watching that trash. And I separated myself. Now, now in our lives as Christians, there's times where we have to separate ourselves from trash. You have to be set apart to be holy. It's a decision that you make in your mind to, to not go back to those old things, to not entertain the old lust. And as Peter did for a time where he just went back to fishing, right? He says, don't go back to those things. Stay in the, the barrel. Stay in. You know, when I first moved here to Tooele, I had a job at, I took a night job. First thing I did when I got here, I had the job before I got here. I took a night job at Home Depot, stocking shelves at night in a night shift. And a pretty rough crew I worked with, you know, none of them Christian and None of them religious at all. A bunch of foul guys that come in and see who could tell the most lies about the, the things they didn't really do the night before, you know, how foul they could be. And, um, and, and I had a pretty good relationship with most of them, got along well with them. There was, worked with this kid and, you know, I don't know if shock value or what, but he used to come and loved his 666 belt buckle and his whatever. And, and him and I were friends, friends to this day when I see him. But you know what? There was times when, there was a balance. And I can remember one time the boss, and they used to call me preacher. And uh, it bummed me out that night, but he, he said, preacher, how come you're so antisocial? And they were doing something, and I just wasn't a part of it. And it, after a while, after months and months and months, it got to him. And it bummed me out, you know, that I didn't, want, I, didn't want, I didn't want him to feel that way about me. I didn't want to be antisocial. I wanted to love those guys. But th- there was no way. There was no way I was going to hang out and do what they were doing and be where they were all the time. And, and, and even if I stayed quiet, sit there and listen to that junk that they were talking about and doing. And so many times I just, I just removed myself quietly. I never went and told them, hey, you guys are wrong. And you guys are, you know. If they asked, we'd have a conversation, whatever. I had opportunities to witness. But, you know, he came back and he said, oh, preach, why are you so antisocial all the time? I said, I'm not antisocial, bro. I, I, I just don't want to talk about that stuff. And I don't want to be a part of it. I'm just different. You know, it doesn't, I'm not entertained by that stuff. And so there, there was a, there, there's a struggle. I realize the struggle is real, right? Hashtag struggles real. <laughs> like that, that, that as Christian people to be holy, to be set apart, there, there, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be some, some name calling or some judging on the, from them to us that, that we think we're better and then we're not. But we are going to make decisions that we're going to be set apart and, and try to find the best, best loving solution you can to be set apart, to be holy, to remove yourself from those things. Peter is telling us, listen, don't go back to the old you. Don't revert to that. Battle the mind. Set yourself apart. And then he goes on and he says in, in verse 16, I already read it, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So who's going to judge you? My old boss that said, Preacher, why are, you, why are you so antisocial? Is he the one that I have to worry about judging me one day? Who does, who does verse 17 say is going to judge me? Verse 17 says, The Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. So, so one day, the Father is going to judge your life, and that's what you have to worry about. And conduct yourself in fear of that day, and not of, of whether you're going to be cool or, or liked or your Instagram is going to get hit. And, and worry more about how is the Father going to judge that situation, that act, and, and live with it in fear. You know, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. 
So do you know you're supposed to fear God? Does that offend some of you leaf lickers in here? Tree huggers? If that didn't, that just did. So we're good. You're, you're, you're offended now that you're to fear God. But you know what? It, it's the reality. God is a good, good father. But there needs to be a healthy respect and fear for God and his ability to wrath and to judge that's healthy. There, there's a famous sermon that thousands and thousands of people were touched and, and were, were changed by by one of the preachers, one of the famous preachers of the, of the turn of the century. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when he preached that sermon, people by the thousands, where Holy Spirit was poured out, were coming to Christ. Great sermon, great work, move of God's spirit. But the reality is, I don't think theologically that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. I think technically we're sinners in the hands of a loving father. But even in the hands of a loving father, there's a healthy fear that each one of us should have. Any of you guys ever show, show up an hour and a half after your dad told you to be home, your mom told you to be home? You're like two doors down from your house and you're, you're two hours late. You should not start getting in your stomach because you know you're late. That kind of fear. Not because you're going to go in and your mom's going to shoot you with a gun and kill you and kick you out of the house forever and disown you, but because she knows she loves you and there's going to be some discipline and there's a fear, there's a healthy fear and respect as you go into that situation knowing that discipline is coming. And Peter says that, that, that we need to have that healthy fear of God in our lives, especially in the respect to sin. As it goes on, we're going to finish today. I'll, I'll, I'll speed it up so we can finish. It says, knowing in verse 18 that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So it goes on and Peter reminds us, and the Bible oftentimes does this, you guys, there's a gravity that the Bible wants you to catch and me to catch about the blood of Jesus Christ. Tells us just plain and simple, you were bought with a price. And Peter here says that price that you were bought with, it wasn't silver and gold that perishes, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you were bought. Do you realize that you're owned? I want to offend you today. Let's go for it. Someone owns you. Do you realize you were bought? You're not your own. And Peter says you were bought with a price. And the Bible, again, makes an emphasis on the idea that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that that, that paid your price. In Hebrews, in order to get your attention, Paul says you have to trample through the blood of Jesus to get to hell. And he paints a picture of bare feet walking over warm blood to get to to hell. Literally what you have to do to get there because of the, the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. And so there is this idea that we are bought with a price and that price is precious. And as Christian people, listen, there, there's, a, there's a healthy a fear, there's a love, there's a respect, there's, a, there's an understanding in that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. That's why when I share about the crucifixion, I give you gory, factual, real details of how Jesus was beaten and suffered so that, that it tries to put some credence to the the gravity of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Verse 21, who through Him... Verse 21, you guys are all there? Him, capital H or small h? So capital H, through Him, believe in God, who raised Him 
from the dead, in case you weren't sure who that first hymn was, who raised him, same hymn, from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Who's that hymn? Oh, you guys are boring. Who's that hymn? Somebody say, Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus, right? So listen, check this out. Who through Jesus believe in God is what that sentence says. So, so Peter is telling us in this progression the same thing that, that, that is so true. That, yeah, we have, and he started it in verse 3. Who did he start it to? Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts by bringing the glory to God, the Father. Then he comes back to it, and he says that we should know or that we should have this, this thing with God, but that it comes through Jesus. Jesus is the way to God. You want, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You, you want to meet God? You want to serve God? You want to love God? Then meet Jesus and serve Jesus and love Jesus. That it's all about Jesus. You know, and again, this is something that is so emphasized here because everywhere where we have cults and isms and schisms, the number one marker of a false religion is they diminish and they take the place of Jesus and they lower him just a little bit. Some people a lot a bit. But the place of Jesus is lowered, is diminished. But in true Christianity, in biblical Christianity, it's exactly the opposite. The place of Jesus is always elevated. And Jesus is lifted high. And and I want to just tell you this. I want you to understand this. It's biblical. It's It's not personality. It's not sway. It's not style. It's biblical that Jesus is lifted high. And that's what Peter's telling us here. Listen, he wants you to know God, but he wants you to understand that that is through who? It's through Jesus. Who through Jesus believe in God, whom raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you are, verse 22, you have purified your souls in obeying truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. What's the best thing that we can do as a little church here? What's the best thing we can do for our church here? You guys want to see this church just be blessed? What, what could you do as an individual to help this church and the people that come to this church just be blessed? Love one another. Love across the aisles. Love with a pure heart. Love fervently, Peter tells us. I love how we, we, we went and we studied John, and John was just kicking our butts over love one another, love one another. And then we get to Peter, and Peter's got some other stuff that he really wants to hammer home with hope and different things, but he's not going to leave it undone. Peter's at least going to hit on it that, that, that we should love one another. How, how does Jesus told us how the world would know that we're, we're his disciples? Jesus, how did, how did he say, how did Jesus say the world would know that we're his disciples? Based on the Christian t-shirts we wear? If you have a hoodie that says Acts ten thirteen on the front, is that how people will know you're Christians? If you have a Christian cross on your, on your hat or bracelet or something? Those things are cool. I got a bunch of t-shirts and hoodies that say Jesus on the front. What if you got a bumper sticker on your back of your car? It says, Jesus loves you, but everybody else thinks you're a jerk. Because you got your middle finger hanging out the window. Is that how people know you're, you're, you're Jesus' disciples? Jesus said, it's, your, it's by your love, one for another. By this, they'll know you're my disciples. You know what's interesting about that? Jesus didn't say by your love for other people. Jesus didn't say by your love for the lost, which you think would be would make sense, right? As a Christian, I just see these lost people. I see homeless people. I see people out there in the world and my love for them by this people will know that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not what he said. 
He said, by my love for you guys, by our love for one another, for other believers, that's how people are going to know that we're Christians. You know, part of what I did um, was I trained missionary teams, young missionary teams, high school kids, and, and, and teams that were going to short-term missions trips. And we did um, classes for people going to the Philippines, going to Russia. And one in particular, the trip to Russia, they were doing a lot of street witnessing. And they, were gonna, they, had, they had dramas that were planned out. And they were going to go out in the streets of Russia in, in Moscow in a city that we have a church where Vlad is at called Nizhny Novgorod. And in, and in the streets there, I would tell the kids, these high school age kids that were going there, hey, listen, when you get there, you're naturally just going to love the people. You, you know, you see somebody without shoes. I know these kids will take their own shoes off their feet and give them to, another, to somebody in the streets of Russia. No problem. Take their shirt off their back and give it to somebody who needs it. I said, those things are cool, but Jesus said it's how you treat one another. So when the Russian people come to your, to your performance and they come to your street witnessing and you're preaching, they're watching how you treat each other. And Jesus said, it's by your love one for another. By this, they'll know you're my disciples. So let's be careful when we're on the streets of Russia, when we go on these missions trips, that we understand that people are watching how we treat each other. So for you guys, when you guys go feed the homeless and when we, we go do those things, so important that we your team loves each other and not, not that we just love the homeless people, which we should do. And it's going to come a little more natural, but that we treat each other well as we go and as we serve. And so that that's what Jesus said. And that's what Peter says. And then he goes on and he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man and the flower of the grass and the grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So now Peter says, love one another. You know, the father, you know, him through his son, Jesus, and you know, Jesus through the. Through the that's like a fill in the blank for you guys, you know, Jesus through the. Through the word. And then he says that, you know, you know, somebody who's famous and powerful 100 years ago, we don't even know their name today. And if you go to find them, their bones, their flesh has rotted and decomposed and maybe a few bones left. They're gone. They've withered. But the word of God, guess what? It's still here. It's still powerful. Now, now it, it's through the word of God. It's in the word of God that we know Jesus and we know truth. Now, again, the enemy, one of the things the enemy is going to do, he has to attack the validity, the power, the inspiration of God's word. And if he wants to tell a lie, he has to attack it according to the word. But the word itself gives power and gives testimony over and over again that that it's through the word of God, this word which lives and abides forever. You know, there's those like maybe around the 1800s, 1820s that came and said the Bible was flawed and we need to do a redo. And we need another revelation. But yet the Bible over and over and over again says it's not flawed and that it's it's relevant and that it's it's capable and that it's it's good for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Let let, let me make you guys day to day and then we'll wrap up with this last thought. First of all, there's two things I know. There is a God and you're not him. Okay. with that said, I'm going to make you God today. So now you're God. Chuck, Chuck, Mindu. And just pretend for a minute if you were God. Let me ask you a question. If you were God and 
And, and you created the world that we live in today by your power, by your word from your mouth. You're the only thing that lives that can create with no materials. I don't need to go give you two by fours to build a house. You can just say house, materials appear. You, you can create a solar system where the moon and the sun and the stars are the right distance apart so that life can only live on this little planet we call Earth. You can tilt it just so perfect so that it can spin and everything cannot fly off of it. You, you can put people on it and water and oceans, and you can create here on this planet people that have blood that circulates through a vein system. And, and if you cut them, the, the, they, they, just, they naturally just heal themselves. You create a little medicine um, things in their, in their, in their insides that, that give them the release the medicine they need to be well. And you want them to live 900 years, and so they live to be 900 years. And then at some point you say that's too long and you want to pull it back to about 100 years. And so you change something in the atmosphere and, and now they only live 100 years. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, period. So that's you. You create the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, the planets, the stars, the people, and everything's perfect. And then someone asks you to write a book. And you're like, T-Rexed. Don't. I can't do that. Could you, as, as that God, could you write a book that was valid for 2016? If you were God or not. Or would men get their hands on it and mess it up and flaw it? and Oh, God, don't read that. I blew it. But that's what they want us to believe. They want us to believe that the word of God is not, that the God, first of all, is unable to preserve his own word. I don't buy it. Not for a second. If he's a God, then he can preserve his word. And if he's not a God that can preserve his own word, he's not a God that we need to serve. And God is capable of preserving his word right down to 2016, especially when the Bible tells us hundreds of times throughout the Bible that the word is good. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's, it's going to, as Peter tells us, abide forever. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Hey, you're not God anymore, right? That, that's over. You're back to being yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And we, we, Lord, we thank you for Peter. I thank you, Lord, that, that Peter, in the face of persecution, that the church grew. And Lord, we don't understand that, that level of persecution and probably have never met anybody that's died because they were a Christian. Probably never met anybody that was tortured just for the simple fact that they were a Christian. And yet, Lord, in that type of persecution, the church grows. And Peter uses that to encourage us in a living hope, a living hope in a, in a risen Savior that we serve a God who's alive and well today. And we thank you, Jesus, that you're alive and that we can go to Jerusalem. We can stand in the place where you were buried and see that you're not there, that, you're, that you have risen. Lord, we thank you that Peter encourages us in, in who we are and this hope of salvation that we have through faith. And that he encourages us, Lord, as we, we go through this first chapter and guarding our minds and, and, and winning this fight in our minds and setting ourselves apart as holy and, and not returning to sin. And Lord, I thank you that, that your word is true and we can trust it and that we get to know you through Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here today that wants to know God but doesn't know Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. And that people would get saved and come to know Jesus. 
And so, Lord, we invite those that, that are here that, that want prayer, that want to know Jesus, to come and receive that from you and for you and by you and in you. And, Lord, I pray for each one's week that everybody have a blessed week and just a good start to the, the next week and, and leading up to Christmas. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your people, and I thank you for everyone's here. In Jesus' name, amen.